Welcome to episode 109 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Tony Robledo, who served in the FBI for 25 years. He spent most of his stateside bureau career in California with assignments in the San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles divisions. Tony Robledo also served significant time working for the FBI in Mexico as an assistant legal attache in Mexico City, where he was responsible for criminal matters, and as a border liaison officer, BLO, during his time in San Diego. In this episode, Tony Robledo reviews three of the many murder cases and fugitive apprehensions and extraditions he was involved in during his various assignments in Mexico, including the capture of a man who raped and killed a woman in New Orleans and fled to Mexico, a man who threatened a U.S. Congresswoman and fled to Mexico, and an American man who stabbed his American boyfriend 24 times while vacationing in Mexico and then fled to the U.S. During his assignments in Mexico, Tony Robledo, who is a native Spanish speaker, conducted investigative leads with the assistance of his Mexican law enforcement partners, arranged case coordination meetings between U.S. and Mexican prosecutors, conducted pretrial interviews, and legalized evidence for use in U.S. federal courts. His efforts contributed significantly to the capture and extradition of the main subjects involved in a U.S. consulate murder investigation. This investigation was the recipient of the 2011 Legat Office Investigative Excellence Award. Tony Robledo retired from the Bureau last year and currently resides in San Diego. Every time I conduct an interview with a retired agent, I learn something new. And this episode was no exception. It's really fascinating to learn about how the FBI operates in foreign countries. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. But before we get to the interview, I just have a few things that I want to remind you about. The first one is that I did have an opportunity to meet and to hear directly from new FBI director, Christopher Ray, And I have written a post about the inspiring message that he gave to current agents in the Philadelphia division and the handful of retired agents, including myself, invited to attend that meeting. In my April email to reader team members, I'm going to be sharing my thoughts about what Director Ray told us. So if you're not yet a member of my reader team, please sign up. You can go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and sign up when you see the pop-up, or go to my Facebook author page, Jerry Williams Author, and you'll see the sign-up button there. The other thing I want to remind you is that I don't do Patreon, and I don't have ads on my show, but if you do want to support me and you like crime fiction, I invite you to check out my crime novel, 
pay-to-play about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry, which was inspired by a real case in the Philadelphia division. You can also purchase pay-to-play for someone you know who loves crime fiction. My next novel, Greedy Givers, will be released in June. But if true crime books are more your speed, just remember when you join my FBI reader team, I'll send you the FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs written by the very agents who have been interviewed on this podcast. I have nearly 35 books for you to choose from. Thank you for your support. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am thrilled to introduce my guest, Tony Robletto. Hi, Tony. How are you? Pretty good, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, Tony, I think this is going to be a really fascinating episode because what you're going to do is to share with us a variety of cases. I think there's going to be three cases that we're going to talk about that are going to illustrate the work that you did as an ALAT, which is an assistant legal attache, and also as the border liaison when you're working out of San Diego. Correct. Yes. During the time that you worked both as a border liaison and actually in Mexico as an ALAT, most of the things that you worked on were leads, cases that you were providing assistance on. Is that usually how it works when you're in a league ad? Yes, you're providing uh, leads, requests to obtain documentation or locate a fugitive or work a kidnapping case if it involved a U.S. citizen. The thing about when I say U.S. citizen, a lot of the kidnapping victims were U.S. citizens by birth. They weren't tourists going down there on vacation that were kidnapped. These were full-out counts, Mexican nationals who just happened to be U.S. citizens as well. So the first case that we're going to start with is a case that is a very tragic case, and it involves a mother and a son taking a walk in the park. They fugitive case that you investigated when you were a member of our legat, our legal attache in Mexico City. So I think this is going to be fascinating for all of us to hear about how the FBI conducts investigations overseas. So why don't you give us like a, a little tease and then we can start from the very beginning. But just in general, what's this case about? Yes, this case is about uh, this fugitive by the name of Edmundo Cerda Anima, who was wanted out of New Orleans Division for the May 2006 murder of Sandra Adams. Sandra Adams, 51 years of age at the time, was a real estate agent, a grandmother who had gone out for some exercise with her son at the Lafreniere Park in Jefferson Parish. It was late in the evening, around 9 o'clock, when she went out for, for a walk while her son jogged ahead on this two-mile trail. And also there were a couple of friends who went jogging as well. They just went and jogged ahead. After a while, she had failed to return to her vehicle, so a missing persons report was filed with the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. 
early the next morning, though, at the same uh, near a canal embankment, the victim's body was discovered. She was found nude and in a prone position. Uh, also found near the victim's body were pants, underwear, and the right shoe. An autopsy was performed, and it was concluded that Sandra Adams had been raped but died as a result of multiple force injuries from being struck by a vehicle. The investigation later determined that the fugitive Edmundo Sevanima was uh, identified as a killer. It also determined that he was living in Wichita, Kansas at the time and had relocated to New Orleans to work construction following Hurricane Katrina. The investigation continued. Uh, they interviewed, uh, they tried to develop some leads to try and locate this individual, and they soon discovered that this individual had fled to Mexico. Was that where he was originally from? He was from, he was a Mexican national, and I don't know what his status was when he was living in Wichita, Kansas. But uh, following Katrina, a lot of people arrived to help rebuild New Orleans after that hurricane, to include a lot of people from Mexico as well. So in August of 2007, they requested a provisional arrest warrant for Cerda Adima. And at that point, that's when the, uh, the locals would reach out to the FBI for assistance in trying to find this guy. And since this guy was believed to have fled to Mexico, is when the agents start checking all databases and find, figuring out ways to determine where this person may be hiding. Fortunately, though, a few years later after that, they were able to get a confidential informant who was operated by another one of our sister agencies who decided to cooperate. He was in a position to locate the fugitive. Now, when we go back to the subject, uh, Edmundo Cerda Anima? Edmundo Cerda Anima, yes. How was he identified as the murderer? Was it through DNA or through witnesses? How it was through how... witnesses, uh, through interviews of witnesses. Um, the person he was living with provided information to the detectives, and which is how they determined he was living in Wichita, Kansas, prior to relocating to uh, New Orleans to work construction. So take me back to that day, and I know that you were uh, involved in the investigation of actually locating uh, the, the, the fugitive, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the basic case first, um, you know, what you know about that. I'm sure that as uh, when they sent the lead, they provided, you know, additional information. So I'm really curious as to where the subject was that day. So the mother and son are taking a pleasant walk run in the park. Why was he there? What was he doing? Who was he with? He was basically uh, the park is where him and his other fellow construction workers would go there to go drink and party you know, after work. So it was a place that they would frequent regularly, you know, to to go drink and party. And there was nothing else to it other than just going to a park. And you mentioned that he hit her with his car. Was that intentional because he planned to rape her? Or do we know if it was just an accident he, and once he... Yes. His version was that uh, he was drunk and high on cocaine when he struck her with the vehicle. There were parts of the park that 
it lacked lighting as a result of the hurricane. There were lots of lights that weren't functioning. So he he claims it was an accident, but um, unfortunately, you know, when he then took the body and transported it to another location and disrobed the body, you know, um, you know, it becomes more than just a hit uh, vehicle or vehicle or homicide. Do you know what type of injuries she sustained? Well, it showed that, um, according to the autopsy, she sustained multiple rib fractures on the left side of her body, a spleen laceration, and a bruised upper lobe of her left lung. Her pelvis was fractured and her left hip was dislocated. Her face, trunk, and legs sustained abrasions. The back and left side of the victim's head exhibited signs of hemorrhage. The victim's neck was fractured and dislocated, and her brain also displayed signs of hemorrhage. You know, at the trial, the uh, the pathologist testified that these injuries these injuries were consistent with the victim being struck from behind by a vehicle traveling at least 15 miles per hour that did not attempt to break. I'm listening to you, and it's just mind-boggling. So this woman has already suffered being hit by a car. And then the subject picks her up, instead of trying to get help for her, sexually assaults her. Correct. According to the doctor, the doctor opined that the victim had survived the the injury. She likely would have been quadriplegic and that um, she could have been alive for some minutes, possibly a half an hour after the uh, being struck by the vehicle. So knowing this type of information, when you get this lead, you know, when they notify you that the subject who has done this, who has taken this type of violent action, when you get that lead and you're asked to, you know, try to locate, identify, and arrest him, what are you thinking? I know we all try to be professionals and we try our best not to let our emotions dictate what we're supposed to do. But this seems just like one of those cases where you can't help but feel for the victim. Absolutely. And uh, I give credit to the agents who were able to develop that informant who was willing to travel to Juarez and meet with me and then point out the location. So clearly it was such a crime that even the informant felt the need or the importance of wanting to help bring this person to justice even at risk of the informant who might have been discovered of helping, you know, agents in locating this individual. And at that time, he was believed to be living in Ciudad Juarez in in the state of Chihuahua. Just to give you a little context of Chihuahua at the time, in 2010, there was the city of Juarez was plagued with drug-related violence, which had reached about 3,000 homicides at the time. So you can imagine, uh, you know, covering leads in what has required close coordination with our Mexican counterparts. So in tw- so then in May of 2010 is when I received the lead when I was an ALAD assigned to Mexico City. I then reached out to our Mexican counterparts who worked for the Mexican Attorney General's Office, which is known as the PGR. They had an Interpol team that was dedicated to looking for these for these fugitives wanted under a provisional arrest warrants. So I uh, met with the team and uh, I was able to get funding to travel up to Juarez from 
Mexico City with this team of three agents. We then uh, departed on um, on Friday, May 14th. We took off early from Mexico City. And we traveled to Juarez. There I had coordinated with the regional security officer at uh, the U.S. consulate to uh, arrange to have an interview room set up so we can debrief the source. The source then showed up, and we sat down and interviewed this guy who provided us with additional information of what the fugitive was up to. Uh, the source advised that the fugitive was living, was made, had made a living recycling scrap metal out of a residence in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, he described his home as being cream-colored and next to a green home owned by the fugitive's cousin. Additionally, he advised that the fugitive, Sadranima, was living with his wife and two small children and drove a gray Ford pickup truck, which he used to haul metal. You know, and then, you know, what, what we usually do, I then showed him a photo of Sadranima that was in the FBI wanted poster. Upon looking at the photograph, the uh, source advised it looked similar to the photograph, but had shorter hair. Although, you know, the source did not have the actual address, of the fugitive, he did agree to accompany us to the location and point out the residence. So while we're there at the consulate, I was able to get the RSO to uh, lend us a driver and an armored van so we could then load up in this van and do a drive-by and have the source point out the location. So we departed the consulate around 11 o'clock that morning. We get to where the address is. And he points it out, and uh, we're satisfied to the location. We depart the area, and it was agreed upon to drop the uh, source off at a bus station. The reason being was to allow the uh, the source to depart the area of Juarez and to give him an alibi in the event word got back to him or people would, would wonder if he had anything to do with locating the fugitive. So we did that, and then uh, we go back. To this time, we go back to a, a, a hotel which was located to the next to the consulate, where we uh, briefed up plan to go after this fugitive. So, uh, because of the the danger and all the uh, risk involved of operating Juarez, it was agreed that the three agents from the PGR would then go to the local office of the PGR, pick up some long guns, and get a, a discreet vehicle to go look for this fugitive. Uh, based on that, it was best that I stay at the lodging for safety reasons, and the HSN departed. So about um, 5 p.m. the same day, the PGR agents returned to the location and observed a fugitive set of the anima in front of the residence. They then employed a ruse of having car trouble to approach the fugitive. At first, the fugitive agreed to be interested in helping them out, but that at some point, they then identified themselves as PGR agents and stated their purpose. You know, at first, the fugitive denied being Serranima and provided an identification in the alias of Jesus Martinez Galaviz. Uh, keep in mind that it's very easy to get fake ID cards in Mexico. So this guy was just living under this assumed identity, just living his normal life. So then uh, the PGR agents, feeling uh, like they've come to a standstill with this guy, they then they asked him if he would if he would agree to come to some arrangement if he admitted 
is true in identity. In other words, they use the ruse of corruption to say, hey, you got to tell us who you are. We'll let you go, but you're going to have to tell us who your true identity is. Of course, uh, the subject, thinking that he would be released, admitted that he was Serda and Anima, who was wanted in the U.S. The agents then took him into custody without incident and transported him to the local PGR office for processing. The following day, Serda Anima was transported to Mexico City to begin extradition proceedings. About five months later, he was then uh, extradited from Mexico City to Jefferson Parish in October of 2010. There, uh, the detectives interviewed him and he admitted to striking the victim with his vehicle and that he was drunk at the time and high on cocaine. After that, the case went to trial. He was subsequently convicted and sentenced to life in prison in February of 2012. So this pretty much illustrates the type of work we did down there and the fact that their ability to do our job was based on our relationships with our Mexican counterparts. And as you can see, uh, the trust that we had developed, this was not a vetted team. This was a normal PGR agent assigned to a Interpol unit in Mexico City. And uh, we've had worked several fugitives before that. And so you develop this trust with your Mexican counterparts. And it always helped to go along with them to make sure everything was done. And there were, you know, there were some issues you were at least there to witness or be knowledgeable, have firsthand knowledge of what was happening at the time. So could you tell us more about being an ALAT? You know, we've had a number of other interviews with agents who were a part of the LEGAT program. What's your story? I mean, do you speak Spanish? How did you get this particular assignment? Yes. In fact, uh, when I entered the Bureau in 1991, I had just completed a tour in the Navy and I was looking for work. And I came across this advertisement in this Hispanic community newspaper where the FBI was looking for Spanish-speaking agents, you know, and uh, it sparked my interest. I then applied. I took the test and I was able to enter under Diversified Ending Language Program. And being a top 15 or top 10 city at the time, I was able to return back to San Francisco, which was the office I processed out of. I started off working violent crimes in Oakland, and then after two years of that experience, I was transferred to a drug squad in San Francisco, where the majority of my experience has been working the Mexican drug trafficking organization. So that experience helped me in obtaining a, a tour in Mexico City, which is my second tour, my first tour was in Monterey, Mexico, when I was assigned to uh, DEA, part of the Resolution 6 program, where we just worked at drug matters exclusively. And then I did a second tour in Mexico City, where uh, the majority of the work was kidnappings uh, and fugitives and, and murder case, murders of U.S. citizens. Talk to me a little bit about provisional arrest warrants. What's the difference between a provisional warrant and you know, a warrant that would be issued here in the United States? Well, a provisional arrest warrant is is based on this treaty we have with Mexico that certain crimes would allow us to extradite Mexican nationals back to the U.S. to face justice in this country. Basically, the process would be for the district attorney, if it's a state case, like this case was a murder case, to then uh, solicit a, a, uh, assistance from DOJ 
at headquarters in obtaining a provisional arrest warrant. It then goes to the State Department and then handed over to the Mexican version of the State Department. The facts of the case are presented to a Mexican judge who then issues a warrant in Mexico for the arrest of that individual for subsequent uh, arrest and extradition back to the U.S. So the difference is you have a, a actual Mexican judge who approves the warrant for the person's arrest. Now, did you have an opportunity once he was arrested? Did you have an opportunity to interview him? No, I did not. And usually we don't do interviews like that. You usually have to get permission from a Mexican judge to has to grant permission for interviews of that type. It's best to let the Mexicans do their thing, arrest the person, and then transport them back to this uh, detention facility in Mexico City where they await a tradition. And usually the best time to maybe try and develop a rapport with the fugitive would be on the flight back or as soon as he gets to the U.S. Uh, I wasn't involved in the actual flying out the extradition process. Uh, another ALAT was assigned that duty. But usually, from my experience of doing extraditions, you do start to build rapport with these fugitives while on the plane flying back to the U.S. You try and get a little rapport going and, um, you know, put the person at ease and make them feel comfortable with cooperating. Despite how you felt about what he did and all that, I think what we do best is show enough empathy where you can convince the person that um, you're just you're there to see if you can help them out in some way. Now, I know one of the things that you were talking about was developing this really good relationship with the Mexican law enforcement agencies. Yes, it absolutely. When you consider the Mexico City is one of the oldest legal offices that we have. In fact, they just celebrated their 75th anniversary in 2015. It's just been tremendous to have an opportunity to uh, collaborate with them and working together with them, both on fugitive and drug matters and, and murders that, that they, we help each other out on. Well, it sounds like this was one of the more fulfilling and significant fugitive cases that you worked when you were in Mexico City. But I would imagine that there were a number of others that we might have an opportunity to touch on for a little bit. Yes, even uh, as when I was the border liaison, where I worked at Fugitive Matters in with, with Baja, California, we had one case. We had this individual who had made threats to Representative Tulsi Gabbard, the congressperson from Hawaii. And mm -hmm. uh, the person was making these threats to her. The Capitol Police had to uh, provide her 24-7 security. What type of threats was this person making to the congresswoman? From my understanding, he, he had tried to get involved in her campaign and just got infatuated with her, where he was just making these crazy threats to uh, cause her serious harm, which is why the Capitol Police you know, put in place 24-7 security on her because they didn't, didn't know what this person was capable of doing. So, yes, it was, it, was, it was a threat of serious harm. So it was almost one of those very similar to a celebrity stalking type threat. Similar to that, yes. And the lonely lead they had was that this guy was living, renting a place out in Tijuana 
and using a Starbucks to do his business. This Apparently, this guy made money editing manuscripts for a living. And so he's able to do that from his laptop, and he would get paid through a PayPal account. So the other tip we had was that he would withdraw money from us, an ATM. Why was he down there? He had fled to the, the person who had made the threats to the congresswoman had fled down there to hide because he knew he was wanted. So he thought he could just hide out in Plaza Tijuana, which is a suburb of Tijuana near the beach. And he did so by renting a room, paying cash for the room, and um, using the PayPal account to get paid for what he did for a living, which was editing manuscripts. And he would just withdraw money from an ATM at the shopping center nearby. So we had the area. We hadn't narrowed down to an area, but it's like anywhere you know, if I say go to go to any town in the USA and go look for a guy, well, you need a little more than just a general area. You need somewhat of a specific location. You know, unfortunately, we did have the information that he was using the, the Wi-Fi at the Starbucks. But the chances of catching them there would, you know, it kind of hit or miss. And it's not like we're... In Mexico, every day we could do a spot check every day of location. It's basically a lot of it has to do with planning and traveling and planning your uh, trips accordingly and uh, setting time aside where your counterparts are available to assist you. With that particular case, uh, we had spent a couple of days working with the state police on trying to locate this individual. The first time we went down, we canvassed the neighborhood and knocking on doors trying to find this individual. Uh, the second time around, we focused on the Starbucks in Plaza Tijuana where this person would have been sitting at doing his job. So we went to the Starbucks. We were unable to locate him in the morning, so we then went to this mall across the street shopping center where he had used the ATM and we're talking to the security folks there, and they were somewhat cooperative and uh it was determined that they would require some uh, legal paperwork to assist us. So we're about to head on back to the uh, state police office to come up with that paperwork when uh, my VLO partner, board liaison officer partner, decided to go to the Starbucks one more time to get a bottle of water. So we're parked right there in the parking lot. He then walks back to it and he goes, guess what? Our guy is sitting there right now. So it was myself, my BLO partner, and one state police officer. We go back into the Starbucks, and we confirmed that, sure enough, he was there. And we sat there, and um, we told our counterpart to go call his backup team. And they shortly arrived, and we're dressed down in plain clothes in the Starbucks. And we're sitting inside the Starbucks, and he's sitting outside doing his work on his laptop. And it was agreed that they would just approach him, call him by the, his name. If he would respond to that, would then take him into custody. So sure enough, we're sitting there, and uh, we see the agents get up, and when they go up and they approach him, he acknowledges the name that he was called, and um, they take him into custody. Nobody said a word in the Starbucks because they didn't know if the agents were cartel people or if they were cops. You know, I mean, there's so much impersonations of police officers in Mexico that uh, they were somewhat just didn't say a word. 
But of course, the guy, being a U.S. citizen, he obviously saw them present their IDs and they were carrying, they were armed with their weapons. They, he had to comply with their uh, requests. So, uh, but it was just unique to sit there and observe the whole arrest take place right in front of your eyes as they approached them and uh, identified them and uh, took them into custody. We then followed them in our vehicle. We then take them to their office in downtown Tijuana, where were they processed them right away. And then within three hours, we had them deported back to the U.S., across the border into the U.S., which was great. I tell you, it, it was I, it was such a kick. We were just ready to go home, and my partner goes, let me get a bottle of water. He walks back into Starbucks, and sure enough, the guy is sitting. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? I mean, it's like a, a lot of these cases are really a needle in the haystack. Without a fugitive, without an informant or a good lead from the case agent, it's very difficult to locate people in Mexico, but particularly because you know, everybody has aliases. Or in this case, this guy was a U.S. citizen, but he was renting a room. So there's no, I was paying cash for his room. So there's really no paper trail to follow. So there is a challenge when it comes to working down there and covering these leads. That was a great case, I thought. man arrested in Mexico, charged with making threats against Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. Of course, you know, the Capitol Police and the uh, agents out of Washington Field Office were so thrilled with the fact that we were able to resolve this so quickly and get this person deported within hours back to the U.S. that uh, it was, a, it was a great success on our part. In fact, the Capitol Police were so grateful. They, they gave us a flag that was flown over the Capitol in the shadow box and some coins, which we presented to the head of the uh, state police at the time. And, uh, I mean, that's an, another example of how close we work with our locals. And a lot of it uh, has to do by uh, providing training and working together. And you just develop this relationship with them that, which is really unique to what we do on the border and as well as what our ALAT's doing in country as well. Well, let me ask you a question because one of the things that I do on this podcast is talk about books, TV, and movies and cliches and misconceptions. So in both of these cases, you've told us how the Mexican law enforcement, you've worked with them. They were the people that actually executed the arrest. So in movies, you see law enforcement from the United States, you know, American agents and police officers going to different countries and laying hands on and putting the handcuffs on and making the arrest. Is that something that's even legal? The only time we came close to something like that was following uh, the murder when the two ICE agents were assaulted in San Luis Potosí in 2011, in which one of the agents was killed by members of the Setas, the Seta drug cartel. And in that event, we had deployed with about, I don't know, close to 50 state uh, federal police officers to San Luis, and we're out looking for these uh, killers. And there we were allowed to be armed and, and operate with them hand in hand, and we're actually doing raids with them. Uh, I mean, that would be an example where we may not have physically put the cuffs on the guys, but uh, we were alongside our counterparts, you know, with weapons and body armor and working as a, as a team. I mean, that was a unique cir- a circumstance where we're, we're given authority to do that alongside our counterpart. 
So it sounds to me what you're saying is that in in most situations, FBI agents working in Mexico aren't allowed to be armed? We're not allowed to be armed. No, we're not. Um, but there are exceptions. I mean, the the issue if you're if you're doing an operation like a major case like the assault of the ICE agents, that wasn't the ex- the exceptions to the rule. But otherwise, you did not. You were not allowed to be armed. You could be arrested if you were found there with the weapon. And sure, you had diplomatic cover, and you'd probably get out of it. You'd probably be sent home after that, though. Your, your tour had been curtailed after an incident like that. A uh, good example would be a work in the border where we had the no diplomatic status working as the border liaison with Baja. So every time we crossed, even though we did use armored vehicles, that was our only protection. The Mexicans did all the enforcement action. We would either depart the area or, or observe from a distance. That is absolutely fascinating. As, as an FBI agent, I'm not even sure that I was aware of that. And working, you know, some of these details in Mexico, I can imagine if you're flying, you know, away to another country, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. Uh, I did an interview with uh, an agent who, who worked in Morocco, and, and she was indicating that she had to have somebody with her because she was not allowed to have a weapon. But for some reason, when I was thinking about Mexico and agents working down in Mexico with, you know, the violent drug gangs, uh, et cetera, that in, you know, all situations they would be armed. So, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated. I, I'm learning something because there's so many movies and TV shows that would show law enforcement from the United States and Mexico, you know, running through the streets and shooting, you know, shooting their guns. So that doesn't happen that way. Interesting. Absolutely interesting. So what's the third case that we're going to talk about? This was a case involving uh, a guy who lived in Chula Vista who stabbed his Texas boyfriend. The subject was named David Enrique Mesa, who was convicted by a federal jury on May 2nd, 2017, for fatally stabbing his boyfriend 24 times, slashing his throat twice, and dumping his body in a ravine near Rosarito Beach, Mexico, in order to inherit the boyfriend's estate. It was uh, it was interesting because we spent over a year putting this case together, traveling down there. This person, Mesa, pretty much lived a double life. He did some uh, gay porn type acting, and then he met this older man in his 50s, Jake Marandino, during one of those backstage ads where you meet people. And uh, they ended up getting together and developed a relationship. But what was interesting, in the whole time, this guy had a girlfriend in the U.S., so he kind of had this double life of having this gay relationship with this older gentleman from Texas who wanted to relocate to Rosarito. And he had this girlfriend who was pregnant at the time with his child, so he had this double life that he was doing. It got to the point where, at some point, Jake bought this condo overlooking the ocean in Rosarito Beach, and it was following uh, the sale of the property, went through escrow, and David Mesa, thinking escrow was closed, decided to do a ruse. They were staying at some hotel nearby. He then leaves on his motorcycle. A few hours later, calls up 
the victim and says, hey, my motorcycle broke down. Can you come help me out? So then the victim, Jake, leaves this this hotel and goes down and meets him off this area off the side of the road overlooking uh, these sand dunes in Rosarito. And that's where uh, he stabbed him and slashed his throat and dumped his body over the side down into the ravine. After that, the locals, they started to initiate their murder investigation and they realized they needed help from us. And then that's when our violent crime squad got involved and they initiated their own investigation. And I worked as the liaison between the Mexican authorities and the case agent in San Diego. So both of these men were U.S. citizens living in Mexico? Yes, they were both U.S. citizens which made the case unique, which is why we were able to work jointly with the Mexican authorities. And then it got to the point where it was agreed upon that we would uh, prosecute the case in the U.S. So how did you go about finding him? So after he commits this murder, does he stay in Mexico or does he return to the United States? He returned to the United States. He he produced a piece of paper with what he said was a will in which he claimed the victim had left everything to him. So there you had that aspect of it, him trying to claim the inheritance and to claim the property. But at that time, uh, the Mexicans had thought there was foul play involved. The Estro company stopped the sale of the, of the home. So where he was listed as a beneficiary on, on this condo in Rosarito, that was frozen. And at that point, Everyone believed he was the, the, the prime suspect in this murder. We all believed David Mesa was responsible for the murder, so that's where we focused the investigation on. It involved a lot of travel back and forth, interviewing witnesses on the Mexican side and meeting with the Mexican forensic folks and utilizing them as witnesses as well when this case went to trial. The advantage we had, of course, was that uh, the subject, David Mesa, was living in, in the San Diego area, so case agent with uh, other members of the squad were able to interview the guy where, you know, he admitted being at the crime scene, but he did not admit to the crime itself. What did he say happened? He said he was just there to rob the guy and that was it. But he did not commit the murder, from my understanding. He was there to rob his own boyfriend. Right. But, you know, it was a difficult case because we did everything from get... Uh, the, we did have to rely on the Mexicans for a lot of the evidence, such as uh, there are a lot of toll boots with videos. We were able to get the videos of him and his girlfriend traveling down there and back to the U.S., getting all those records. And then the fact that we were able to get Facebook to give us his ping, his locations via his uh, Facebook account, where, he's, where we placed them in the area of the crime at the time of the crime. So... So there were a lot, yeah. So there was a, a, a lot of uh, multi-investigative uh, approach to uh, putting evidence together on this individual. And the, and the Merendino case it was unique too. The fact that uh, everything was uh, this took a lot of effort, in which I deployed at least fourteen, fifteen times with with the AUSAs and the case agents. So I'd throw them in the armored car. We'd go down there. Up uh, so we had a, we completed all the protocols for traveling to Mexico and we'd go down there and we would meet with the prosecutors down there with the, the Mexican case agents and we'd go interview the witnesses. And, uh, we even had to tow a vehicle back from down there that was 
the, the victim's vehicle, which is this nice uh, Land Range Rover, which was impounded in some tow yard. And then the, to get that out of the country and across the border and back to our office was in itself an ordeal, you know, in itself, uh, having to do all that. So you, you become like uh, uh, knowledgeable on how to do everything down there, whether it's bringing a car across the border to finding fugitives to getting evidence down there that's legalized for use in, in our U.S. court system. So it's a variety of things that you do as uh, an ALAT or a border liaison. Um, so you, uh, it's, just, it's an interesting job to have, and you definitely feel like you're part of the case, and you're contributing to the successful outcome of the case agents uh, of investigations. You yeah. mentioned something about you followed the protocol of being able to conduct investigations. Could you talk more about that? Yes. I mean, because we have to obtain country clearance to travel into Mexico, and that approval is done through headquarters, and the and the LEGAD himself has to approve you traveling to Mexico. As the border liaison, we were able to get it for extended periods of time, which we would renew every six months, I believe we would renew. No, every four months we would renew our country clearance. But the case agents themselves had to get case-specific country clearance approved from headquarters and the LEGAD in order to travel into Mexico. So, like in this Meridino case, the case agents would have to request authority to travel down there with us in furtherance of their investigation. It was only They were only permitted to go only as long as they were traveling with us in an armored vehicle, and for that specific purpose. It wasn't a, a blanket uh, approval to do whatever you wanted to do down there. You know, headquarters in the league were very strict on maintaining that, which was, was just good because, you know, our safety is paramount, and you want to make sure you're doing everything correctly and you're accountable for whatever takes place down there. You retired last year. So what are yes. you doing now? Yes. Now, um, at first, I... Thought I'd do the usual, some traveling, see my relatives in Mexico, travel around, um, take up some golf lessons, you know, things like that. But now I'm just starting to get a little antsy and uh, start working on my resume and uh, seeing what's out there. Excellent. So I'd like to give my guest the last word. Now, you could talk about the cases we've discussed here. You could talk about... You know, the FBI in general or, you know, what's happening today. You have the last word. What would you like to say? I just wanted to say that I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity of serving the FBI. It's been a great life experience. My last five years as a border liaison was, to me, the great way to end my career where I was able to draw upon all my experiences as an agent and assist agents in the San Diego Division with their cases that involved Mexico, particularly all the kidnapping cases and fugitive cases and murder investigations that uh, I assisted them on to include bringing agents with me down there to meet with the uh, Mexican prosecutors and investigators to uh, put these cases together. And uh, we've had a lot of successes in doing so. And so to me, that was the most satisfying part was to end a career on a high note like that. And that's the end of the interview. As always, at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Tony Robledo. 
you'll find numerous newspaper articles about the three cases he reviewed during the interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. At the bottom of this episode's show notes at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, you can share it directly from your phone. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review, because when you do, every Thursday morning, just like magic, the latest episode will appear on your device. I have a great crime fiction recommendation for you this week. No Way Back by Rick Mofina. Now you've heard me recommend Rick Mofina books before. I really enjoy them. They're police procedurals and he always seems to get it right. This one is about a San Francisco crime reporter, Tom Reed, who rushes to the scene of a robbery homicide at a jewelry store to cover the story for his paper, only to discover that the hostage the robbers took away with them after shooting a police officer is Tom Reed's wife. Horrified, Reed confronts and works with San Francisco homicide detectives and the FBI in a life-and-death search to find his wife before it's too late. When possible, I love to listen to audiobooks. It's almost like having a play play out in your head. And the narrator that Rick Mofina uses is fantastic. He does all of the voices, even the female voices, and he does a fantastic job. So again, my crime fiction recommendation is No Way Back by Rick Mofina. And while you're at Amazon.com checking out No Way Back, I hope you'll also pick up a copy of my crime thriller, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. It features extortion, sex, money, and more, and is available as an ebook, trade paperback, and whisper sync for voice ready audiobook. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.